Well, you're the fire, baby, I'm the wood You burn me up like you knew you could We're sitting in my living room with, with Ross Nielsen, who is one of the hardest-working musicians out there. If you look at his website, you'll see that he's played hundreds of gigs already this year. Um, he's been kind enough to drop by and spend a few minutes with me to talk about his career and his life. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's a, you know, it's a beautiful day. I've had a couple of days off in the big city, and I've been enjoying myself uh, a little bit here and there. A lot. I enjoyed myself a lot last night, actually, too much. <laughs> <laughs> it was dicey earlier today. I was like, I don't know if I could do this. <laughs> well, tell me, let's go back to the beginning. Tell, yeah. me, tell me where you're from. Well, so I grew up in uh, Centerville, New Brunswick. Um, I lived there until I was 17, I guess. So I went to high school there, very uh, small, maybe sort of rednecky kind of town in those days. I'm not sure what it's like now, but uh, it was uh, interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, but Centerville at the time was per capita the largest steel manufacturer. Uh, I'm thinking in Canada, maybe even beyond. We had three steel plants uh, there that were building uh, anything from fire trucks to harvesters for potato picking and that kind of stuff. And it's the potato capital of the world, that region. That's our claim to fame, McCain's headquarters. Is that, is your parents farmers or? Uh, no, my dad was an accountant and my mom uh, has had a myriad of jobs from school teaching to uh, she owned um, Sears shops, uh, her own store called Village. Um, what was it called? Village Designs is her store now. Anyway, crafts and fabrics and that kind of stuff. And she's my mom's also an artist. She paints and as uh, a creative lady in general. So, how does music come into your life? Um, I don't know because there's not really anybody I know of else in my family that that plays. Um, supposedly we're related somehow to a Dan- Danish composer named Carl uh, Nielsen, who was the King's composer. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. My grandmother told me that. It's a good story. Yeah, you know, and uh, I haven't done the digging to go back to see. I know his name's spelled a little different than mine, but mine would have been changed when, I guess, my ancestors immigrated. But um, my, you know, my parents both listened to music. Um, you know, I, I remember having a modest record collection when I was growing up. Um, listened to a lot of records on the turntable when I was a kid, and uh, and wore quite a few out. So we we always enjoy. Everyone enjoyed, and my sister and brother are, are rabid music fans as well. Um, just neither of them play an instrument, so maybe they may be musical. Who knows? Uh, I guess you don't know until you try. Silly question, but <clears throat> when you come from a small town, five hundred people, how does one get music? <laughs> um, we could get the. Uh, the Presque Isle main radio station. Uh, so I would hear a lot of rock and roll, like modern contemporary music on that. Um, the record collection at our house consisted of uh, everything from ABBA to the Bee Gees to Elvis Presley, who my brother loved. Um, the Grease Lightning soundtrack was a huge hit in our home. Um, there was a store in, in Florenceville, which is a neighboring community about five minutes away across the St. John River, and uh, Buckingham's, and they would bring in vinyl. And I remember, you know, occasionally my mom would come home with, I remember vividly her coming home with the Thriller 
album i was pretty stoked about that and wore that puppy out listen to that so we could get it. i mean there was department stores in prescott maine which was a 45 minute drive and my dad and i spent a lot of time going to movies over there so we would go to kmart or zares i guess it was there and uh you know i'd go to the music section and, and spend my allowance on that so there was there was definitely areas to get to buy and consume music for sure how did you playing music come about um i always thought guitar was super cool and uh, I had suspicions that maybe it would lead to girls, <laughs> as I'm sure is a pretty common answer among guitar players. Um, so I started asking uh, when I was probably, I would say, 11-ish for a guitar, 10 or 11. And uh, eventually I got, uh, uh, was gifted a, an acoustic guitar, small acoustic guitar. Was never interested in acoustic guitar, always wanted an electric guitar. And uh, so I took a few lessons. I don't know, I was, I'm going to say 11 or 12 and uh, was taught a few chords and that kind of stuff, but it just didn't appeal to me at all to be playing cowboy chords and strumming. Um, and then when I was 13, I got a guitar and amplifier for my birthday, and uh, and I think that was August, and then come October, we had found a guitar teacher in Holton, Maine, which was maybe 40 minutes away. And uh, so I went to him, his name was Andy Cottle, an uh, amazing guitar player, and went to him once a week for five years. And, and musically, what were you listening to at this point? Oh man, um, when I was probably pre, uh, I, I remember a few obsessions being when I was quite young, Corey Hart, <laughs> that was pre um, playing an instrument, Michael Jackson, I loved Michael Jackson, Brian Adams, and then when I actually got a guitar, uh, I was listening to a bit of everything, but I, you know, I listened to the radio a lot, so a lot of whatever rock and roll was on there, at the time it was mostly like hair, like LA hair metal bands, you know, like a... Uh, um, I guess they're from Jersey, but Bon Jovi was a, a mm -hmm. believe it or not, a huge influence. Poison, you know, all those what I would call terrible bands now. And then um, are they still are they terrible to you now? Well, I mean, they're terrible to other people. They're not terrible to me because they're part of my musical DNA. Mm -hmm. and I don't really have any control over that, so it's part of who I am. But uh, a pivotal moment for me would have been um, seeing my. Where, where we lived, we didn't have cable for a long time, and then when we got country cable, like three or four channels, my neighbor down the road, uh, he got the cable with much music on it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I remember him calling me one day, he's like, you got to come down here. And he had the uh, Guns N' Roses live at the Ritz. Um, he had recorded it on his VHS machine. So we watched that, and my mind was blown. Like, Slash was the stuff for me. It was like... Now, would you have access? I know that Fredericton hosts one of the greatest blues yeah. music festivals every yeah. year. But would you have access to live music at any point? Absolutely. Uh, the Aiken Center, which was the hockey arena there at UNB in Fredericton, um, in those days had a fairly regular... Uh, live schedule so I saw my mom would take me to see I saw Corey Hart live uh, Platinum Blonde um, who else was in there Haywire Luba I just, I, my mom took me when I was 13 to see Steve Ray Vaughan there nice. which was a pretty pivotal uh, time for me as well and uh, yes I've seen I remember seeing all kinds of acts come through there for sure so you're considered to be a, a roots or a blues musician where does that part come in well, how did Corey Hart go into? <laughs> I think it depends on who you ask what I'm considered, but I think generally speaking, you're right. Most people would consider me blues, but um, I guess my 
my brother's Columbia House tape collection would be one huge one. And then my guitar teacher, Andy Cottle, would be another huge one. So the, the first kind of major uh, thing for me would be meeting Andy and discussing music at guitar lessons. And some lessons we didn't even pick up the guitar. He had a nice record collection, and he would expose me to Albert King and B.B. King, Buddy Guy, Jimi Hendrix, uh, the Allman Brothers Band, like all these, you know, parts of music that are really important to my musical fiber now. And uh, and then my brother's uh, tape collection I discovered one day, he, you know, and it had Deep Purple, The Doors, um, Led Zeppelin, uh, the Helen Wolf London Sessions, which was and still is one of the major turning points for me was hearing that. And uh, so I found all these, this other kind of still bluesy, but mostly British, I guess, um, rock and roll that was like huge for me. I, I really enjoyed the guitar, although I didn't enjoy... Led Zeppelin the first time I heard them, nor did I enjoy Jimmy the first time I heard him, hmm. believe it or not. And uh, I don't know why, but I guess, you know, music, sometimes you're not ready for something right. when you hear it, and then years later you hear it, and it's all you can do not to listen to. It's uh, so important. But, uh, yeah, I guess those two guys were huge. And then how did that translate into you playing live and becoming a musician? Uh, I didn't really play live much. I was terrified to play live for a long, long time. Um, like 13 to 17, you would have to really pressure me to put me in front of someone to play live. Um, those years I spent learning a lot of theory, and uh, I could sight-read and, and that kind of stuff, but I didn't really know how to interact with other musicians. Um, so when I, I, I guess I played like a few church concerts or maybe a high school concert or something mm -hmm. like that. Would I play one tune, and that would be excruciating for me, so much pressure. Um, and but, what was that? Just the fear of failing? Was it just the fear of crowds? Um, or? Yeah, probably a fear of embarrassment and failing and all those things. You know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly, but I, eventually I grew. Like I started doing a lot of theater in high school and stuff, so that that definitely helped. But I remember the the first like real gig I would say I had. I was probably 14 or 15, and there was like a variety show at the local school, and uh, this uh, this collection of musicians were playing a few tunes, and they had hired me to play rhythm guitar on one tune. So that was like my first like electric band gig, I would say, and uh, and it was awesome. I remember a girl uh, propositioning me afterwards, and me wow. not, and me being so um, like clueless that I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> I thought that's the reason why you got <laughs> I it. I know. <laughs> and there it happens, the first gig, and I'm like, what? I don't know what you mean. Oh my god, it took me a long time to figure out the power of the guitar. Okay, so how does somebody who's kind of afraid to play live? become this guy who just tours like crazy <laughs> yeah that doesn't make sense does it well, at one point i'm sure something uh, changed yeah but. well i mean i started playing more when i was about 18 and then when i was 19 i actually started gigging regularly with another guy uh, named ben cutner we had a duo and uh, I, I don't know i just I, I i guess i just started wanting to perform live and, and enjoying it more each time i did it and i was terrible back then too so i i don't know what what would have compelled me to keep doing it but um and then through my 20s i had you know bar bands and and stuff we would do you know weekend shows and that kind of stuff um so you know i, I didn't i was not afraid to perform then or, or play live in front of people i enjoyed it a lot and a lot of the music i was listening to at that time was kind of jam and, and improv oriented stuff so we did a lot of that but it was it was more about performing music than it was performing for people 
And was this a career move, or were you thinking this is just a hobby? And yeah, I think for a long time it was like, oh, I'd love to do this full time, but I just I didn't have a clue how to do that. You know, I always thought, oh, when I pay this bill or when I'm out of debt on this credit card or whatever, then maybe I'll quit my job and go for it. Um, but uh, so up until that point that I actually did all that stuff, it was just kind of I would bartend. Um, and play on the weekends or as much as I could, but mostly on the weekends to do like little mini tours here and there around the Maritimes. But in 2007, that changed. I had a real uh, pivotal moment. I was doing a short mini tour with uh, a friend of mine, Matt Anderson, in Nova Scotia. And the second day I woke up and I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to go back to working in the coffee shop and doing this part time. And I was in a relationship at the time. She was requesting that I not work every weekend playing music and I thought I could do that and then I just kept taking more and more gigs and then I realized I was like no this is what I actually want to do I want to play music full-time I don't want to work for somebody else and a bunch of things happened at that it was February 2007 at that time that really and I mean I had already released an album previous to that but I, I wasn't full-time uh, musician um, I was still working as well and uh so I got a grant in 2007 to make a new record, and all these things kind of happened simultaneously. And then I, I quit my job, I left my girlfriend, I moved out of my house, and I lived in my car for about 18 months. And I toured around and, and around the Maritimes, and at that time, I think, Quebec and Ontario. And then uh, in 2008, we started touring the band nationally. Okay, so when you decide to live in your car... <laughs> well, that sounds more dramatic than it is. I was... I was, you know, freeloading, couch surfing, that kind of stuff. But when you would decide to do that, I mean, obviously it was a change of life, and you thought, okay, this is what I'm going to commit to. But what was, was there a plan? Was there a business plan or some, uh, some goal? Yeah, I mean, for the grants, I had to have a business plan. So I guess technically there was, but the goal was just to uh, play as much as possible. That was really my only goal, and to get better, to tour more, to play in front of as many people as I could, to put out good music and uh but the the basic goal was to play as much as possible play every gig i could possibly get play every night of the week if i could um and that was really my motivation then for sure and okay that, so now it's changed. eight years later and <laughs> yeah. and it seems like that you've kept up that pace like an insane pace mm -hmm. tell me about that pace of not only just playing around the maritimes but going across canada a number of times a year yeah. and playing from small venues to large festivals but just working your way and uh, slowly building up the, the audience base um yeah it's it's been uh it has not been easy <laughs> to say the least uh you know we started touring nationally in 2008 and we would do two giant when i say giant i mean like 10 give or take two week tours uh of canada so we do one in the spring typically and one in the fall and then Excuse me, I would do solo stuff in the first quarter of the year usually, and then we would do whatever festivals and regional stuff in the summertime. Um, and, you know, to do that, to pull it off, booking those tours would take three months of, of putting the tour together, and then executing the tour when you're out there doing it, road managing, uh, making sure the band's paid, everyone's safe and, and you know, sheltered in some manner. Um, it was. It's a lot like touring with a band was a lot different for me. Touring solo, there's it's so much freer because I don't have as much responsibility, and I can sleep in the van if I have to or whatever. But with the band, uh, there's a lot of other stuff. So you know, we would. 
I would just try and find good venues, and every every time we rode across, you'd talk to people, and they'd say, oh, you should check out this place, and I'd write it all down, and when I get home to do book another tour, I'd go back and investigate these places that people recommend, and you always added a couple of new dates and dropped a couple of venues from the last tour that didn't work or whatever, and um, but we, you know, we had most places we had good re- reception even if there was only a couple people there or if there was a couple hundred people there you know and we just built up you know a few venues to go back to the same venue and same venue and same venue and just pounded into people's head that we at the time you know our model was like we're not going to go away so you have to either come check us out or totally ignore us because we'll be back in six months and we'll be back in six months and i know the idea of building an audience but let's say you play a, a certain town and you, you draw 50 people. Mm. When you go back to that town six months later, are you guaranteed to bring no. any of the 50 people? No. There's no guarantees. No, but yeah. I mean, in, yeah, I in mean, the new experience. Yeah, we've, we've played, I mean, our, our best venues even still. Um, you know, we might play one time and have 150 people there. And the next time we might play and we might have 25 people. And it's, you know, and you think, oh my God, uh, maybe, are we terrible? Like, but you know, people have lives. There's a lot of things to do in a city like Calgary or Edmonton or Toronto, especially Toronto. Um, so, you know, it, you can't take it personally. It's not because you suck. It's just people can't do every single time, you know. So you figure out a way to deal with that mentally and and financially, more importantly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. It's tough, man. I mean, in eight years, we haven't... I don't feel like we've really made much headway, to be 100% honest with you. We've uh, we've toured Canada... I've toured Canada 18 times, I think, since 2008. 17, 18 times. And um, I don't know if I've made any headway, to be 100% honest with you. Like, Well, obviously, people coming to see you, though. Sometimes, yeah. People come and see us. I mean, it's very rare we have nobody come to see us, <laughs> but it, it happens. Okay, so you know. when you tour that much across this country, in this great country of ours, mm-hmm. I presume your perception of Canada is quite different from many others. Probably, yeah. Can yeah. you maybe share that? Like, can you share what your thoughts are when you go across, um, drive across the prairies or go across the Rockies or whatever? Well, it doesn't, that, that part of it doesn't get old for me. Like, I love the traveling. I love... You know, uh, seeing the different parts of Canada. Canada is a, an incredible country, um, geographically speaking. It, unfortunately, it's long between the shows, but uh, visually, it's stunning. I love the prairies. I love northern Ontario. I love the Rockies, um, Vancouver Island. The Maritimes are so so such a diverse lay of land, and it's a uh, it's a treat and a privilege to be able to see that so many times. But um, underneath all that is. Uh, you know, the truth of it is, is, like, much of Canada is dying, closing up shop. You know, the highways are bypassing little towns. The little towns we go through um, get smaller and smaller every time we're through. You know, another business is closed, another hotel is closed. Uh, it's pretty depressing. Why is that? What are you seeing out there? I don't know uh, why. I mean, well, I mean, some towns it's because, you know, maybe the local mine closed or... The paper plant is closed down because that company is getting stuff done overseas now, or wherever. Um, that's certainly a thing that's happening. You know, we're we're definitely shilling out our wares elsewhere instead yeah, yeah. of keeping it in house. Um, that's a prevalent disease in Canada. Uh, I don't know what the answer to that is beyond like maybe let's keep stuff in house. But you do know, you see growth? Do you see any potential? Uh, yeah, certainly in a place like Edmonton. The sprawl is insane. Every time we go back, there's a new subdivision. 
you know, further out on the outskirts of town. And it's, you know, that it's, it's interesting to see that uh, closure of the small town and the expansion of the city like that. It's, it's, for me, it's disturbing. I, I come from a small town and I like the country. I like the cities too, but I prefer to live in a less populated area. And um, it's disturbing to see everyone moving into a, an urban lifestyle and box stores after box store, you know, each, you know, each corner of the city is designed the same. They have the same box stores mm-hmm. and then the southwest areas, same box stores and the northwest areas. It's very bizarre. But, uh, you know, that's the way it's going, I guess, for cities like that. So Now, I know that, you know, in, in the albums that you worked on, that you tend to go to the States to work on them. Mm-hmm. Is that just simply because the type of music you do comes from that area, or what's, um, what drives that? Maybe in part. Uh, mostly those decisions are made because the people I want to work with, that's where they work. Um, if there was a producer I wanted to work with that lived in Fredericton, and you know I have done that, we would stay in Fredericton. Mm-hmm. If there was someone in Toronto I wanted to work with, and that's where they worked, I'd come to Toronto. But the guys I wanted to work with, you know, Cody Dickinson, he's in Mississippi, Anders Osborne's in Louisiana, those are kind of bonuses too because they're, for me to go to a studio, studio work is very different, so you need to wrap your head in, into this, this space, I guess. And first of all, the trip there allows you to bond with the band and get, uh, get your heads in the same space. Um, we've been luxury, luxurious enough to have these uh, kind of attached opportunities like uh, when we did Redemption, we, we, we did the IBC, the Blues Challenge as well. So we were in the area and, and you know, we went to, after we recorded, then we went to Clarksdale and hung out. So it was all this vibey stuff, you know, that contributes to your headspace of a recording. And when we went to Louisiana, we stopped at the Alma Brothers Museum because I'm a big fan. Uh, the day before, so the next day we go into the studio and we're still vibed out from being in Macon and you know seeing all these cool musical history things, you know, and going to Dwayne Allman's grave and stuff like that. So we go into the studio and you're carrying that with you and thinking about those experiences. And then you're in a place like Morris, Louisiana, which is super vibey. You're kind of in the country and it's, you know it's a river in the background. It's kind of those droopy trees and stuff. And and you're working with Andy con- Osborne. Yeah, and and totally. And you're working with you know this heavy dude and uh, working in a heavy studio. It's well, very how vibe-y. easy is it to get somebody like Andrews Osborne, or Cody Dickinson to work on your album? I don't know how much money you get? <laughs> is it, does it simply come down? I can't imagine. I, I, I understand that there's money involved, but yeah. I don't know if they'll just take on anybody. It's for not. The it's not. I don't. I, in fact, I don't think that it is to do with money because I mean. Anders was working pretty cheap for me um, when you break it down to an hourly wage pretty pretty cheap um, he has to be interested in the project he mm-hmm. won't do something he's not interested in he's not going to do a project well I don't know I can't speak for him Maybe but was it a cold call you just said here's my thing I uh, sent a message on Facebook because <laughs> I could that's how I could find him and uh, we had some mutual friends I knew he had played with Luther Dickinson and I'd worked with Cody, so I knew there was that connection. Um, so I just sent him a message. I said, hey, we're thinking about doing a new record. And I'd heard the album he did for uh, Johnny Sansone, um, The Lord is Waiting, that album. And the guitar tones were just awesome. So I was like, yeah. And he, Andrew had, the other thing was Andrew has this unique ability to take kind of singer-songwriter sort of stuff and put it on the same album as like rock and stuff. And it's not weird. It's like it still works. Mm-hmm. So I, at the time, that's kind of what I had 
mentally envisioned for the new record. Um, so I just sent him a message, hey, we have some mutual friends, just thinking of making a new record, just, you know, is this something you'd consider? He said, I'll check your other stuff out and get back to you, and he checked the stuff out, and he said, uh, said he enjoyed it and would consider working together, and then you get into financing and, you know, what's your budget, how much can you spend, and then it goes over to his manager, and, you know, then the budget gets thrown out the window. <laughs> um, but how great was it when he said, yeah, I'm interested? Oh, it was wonderful, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, when you get that positive affirmation from somebody who you admire, uh, you know, that's huge. Like, I, when I messaged before uh, Redemption, before Cody was on board, his dad, Jim Dickinson, was going to do it, who's a legend. Yeah, like, for he's, sure. You know, a, a god. And uh, he, you know, I emailed him through the website and he emailed back personally. And I was like, whoa, wouldn't he have people? <laughs> you know, I didn't know anything about him personally. Yeah, yeah. I just assumed he had people. But, you know, I have a, a philosophy in life. There's a perceived and actual reality. And, you know, the perception of reality is very rarely accurate. So, uh, you know, I, Jim did everything himself. You know, he was a hands-on guy. And then when he emailed me back and sent me some stuff and, and then he was into it, he's like, yeah, if you can come to Mississippi, we can make a record. I was like, whoa, what the heck? You know, was, is he a poor judgment or something? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, on his track record, obviously he doesn't have poor judgment at all. So, yeah, you, you, you know, you don't... You don't uh, I mean, I send Daniel M1 email every time I make a new record he doesn't reply but you know, but, but he knows you're making a new you know, record he's, well someone on his team does <laughs> but uh, you know if you don't ask people then they're, they're not calling you so you got nothing to lose right Right. so we, I, for a new album I make a kind of a list of producers I want to work with and I start contacting them and some reply some don't some say no and some say yes so that's kind of how it works for me but yeah I don't I'm I don't care how famous somebody is. I'll ask them to work with me. I've got nothing to lose. Yeah, sure. And those experiences have been very positive? Totally, yeah. I mean, for, I was thinking about it yesterday. I was, I was like, I could probably be a doctor now the money, amount of money I've spent making records. <laughs> 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 Truly, I could probably have paid for an education in medicine. But uh, that's what it is for me. It's like an education. Like to spend a week in a studio with someone like Kevin Houston who made... Um, our records in Mississippi, uh, you know, he's brilliant in the studio. And if you can't learn something from somebody like that, then you probably should reconsider a lot of things. And working with Cody uh, and, uh, you know, just seeing Luther and Cody and Kevin, who have made records in that studio, the Zebra Ranch, forever, seeing them work as one unit, it's like they all share a brain. It's amazing. They don't have to speak. It's just like... It's happening. Mm -hmm. And to work with, um, you know, Warren Riker engineered the record I did with Anders, and, and his r resume is nuts. Like, I think he's, his work has been on, like, 40 million in sales, something hmm. like that. Like, that's a, that's, a, and, like, good stuff. Like, not, not crap, mm -hmm. you know? So working with someone like that and working with Anders, who is, like, just so creative and so up and so into what's going on it's uh it's a major learning experience you know every time so that's part of the reason i do it i want to work with people that i can better myself from being around and and that kind of stuff but uh you know you also want to work with people who make good records in the end i guess that's kind of the goal so i'm interested we were talking about this a little bit before but you i think recently decided that you want to maybe spend a little less time on the road yeah like none. <laughs> that's okay, a, that's so, an exaggeration. Okay, before we 
get to that decision, the original idea was to do do as much gigs as possible, play to as many people as possible, grow your audience, and keep growing the ge- geography of where you are and yeah. the people you, you play to. Right. And that you've been doing that for eight years. Yeah. Now you're thinking maybe you want to do something different. What? Yeah. What's the thinking behind that? Um, mostly for my health. Um, the eight years I've been doing it uh, hard has been wonderful and awesome, and I've had a lot of good times, but it's also been really, really frustrating, really draining financially and physically, and uh, and mentally especially. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm in a position where I can take a break instead of be forced to take a break for health issues. So I think that I'm very smart to take a break now rather than get to a point where I have to take a break because I have to be institutionalized or something. <laughs> can, can you just kind of paint a picture of what it's like to be on the road? When you decide that you're going to go spend four weeks driving across Canada, what that is, what that lifestyle is like in a, in a nutshell? Yeah, um, I can try. Sleep deprivation, extreme sleep deprivation, um, hemorrhaging money, uh, you're a, a good a good drive a short drive would be four or six hours. Um, a lot of times it's eight ten more because it's Canada, so it's not like the states where there's a you know metropolis every two hours. Right. Um, terrible diet. Uh, we do pretty good. We're all kind of foodies, so we do real good traveling. Uh, when we have a kitchen at our disposal, we'll hit a grocery store. We don't do a lot of fast food stuff. But at some point, you break on the tour, and then it's just like you've succumbed to everything. Like, you you know, you might eat salad for the first three weeks, and then for the last seven weeks, you're eating fries. Right. You know, uh, you break at some point every tour. It happens. Um, this last tour was only two and a half, three weeks. Uh, I didn't break till the last three or four days, three days probably, two days. Um, which was great. So <laughs> I was pretty healthy for most of the tour, but it was only three weeks. So, I mean, you know, that's a joke. But I presume that once you start getting into fried foods or whatever, that your body quickly changes. Sure, yeah. I mean, you, I, I would regularly put 10 pounds on a tour. And then and I would get home and I would lose that 10 pounds in a week. And uh, But, yeah, 10, 10 pounds on a tour, is that's pretty normal. Um, especially the long tours, like 10-week tour, you're going to put some pounds on uh no exercise although i did good this past tour i taken up running and and i you can run pretty much anywhere so mm-hmm. that's helped a lot um yeah i mean there's all these things like and for me because i'm i'm managing the tour i also have to advance all the gigs so i have to call every venue make sure everything's in place make sure the deal is what it's supposed to be find out what time we play what's expected of us where we're staying where we're going to eat um, I have to, you know, make sure the bandmates are okay with sleeping on someone's couch or whatever, you know. Um, there's a lot of those variables. Uh, at the end of all that, of the driving, the business end of things, you know, you get one, two, three hours to be on stage and rock out and get, get a little therapy in yourself. And that's, I mean, that's really really what it's all about you know i think stephen fearing says uh really we're just professional drivers at the end of the day we our reward is we get to play music for three hours to make it worthwhile so you know and that is uh or has been up to a point been worthwhile but um 
the last few tours, uh, when I got home, both tours last year uh, in 2014 and the last tour of 2013, when I got home at Christmas time 2013, uh, I got hit with a little bit of depression and I wasn't sure why because I love being on the road mm -hmm. and I enjoy being home. I was happy at home at the time, but and then the spring tour, it was a little worse. Uh, so the depression is happening during the tour or um, after the tour? I think that it was, but it was obvious at the end of the tour. When I got home, I was definitely depressed. And 2014, it was really bad. Uh, when I got home, it was I didn't want to do anything. It was very lethargic. I didn't just wasn't into working. And usually, I don't I didn't have any problem getting right back into the swing of booking the next tour and working that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I didn't know where that was coming from necessarily. And, and then but by the end of 2014, I realized that I wasn't enjoying playing music live. Mm. And uh, I was like, well, if I'm not enjoying performing, then I probably shouldn't be doing this because that's the only reason I'm doing it. Um, so I wasn't enjoying that. I wasn't enjoying the travel. I mean, it's not, I, when I say I wasn't enjoying it, I still like playing guitar. Sure. It's, I still, anytime I'm playing guitar is enjoyable. But... I wasn't getting what I what I needed from the shows and the performances and stuff, and what ended up happening is all the business end of things had been such an anchor. It was it was negating that few hours of joy that I get. And at the end of 2014, when I got home, I was like, I'm not going to do this again the same way I've been doing it. And I talked to my drummer Carl, who's been with me forever, and uh, he was like, Yeah, so I, I said I'm going to take some time off next year. So that's great, you know. I mean, he he loses money when we go on tour too, because he works uh, when we're not on the road. He works at a music store and uh, teaches drums. So he's like, "That's cool. We'll bankroll for a while and then regroup." I said, "Okay." So I, I had a I had a solo big solo tour book for three months in early 2015. So I had to do that and uh, went into it really depressed and not looking forward to it at all. Uh, but I had a shift on that tour. I really ended up enjoying it. I had a, kind of a rejuvenation in, in playing acoustic guitar. I really loved it. And uh, made this, my shows were much more laid back, and I just kind of enjoyed being there again. How much of that do you think is just exhaustion? Or do you think it's full-blown well, depression? Well, there's a lot of things involved. Like, it is exhaustion. It is uh, dietary. Um, I talked to a friend of mine who's a psychologist and about it, and he he said that um, when you're on the road, it's it, I mean this may come as a surprise. I'm sure most people think that you wake up and you lay around and you drink a bunch of beers and you play a show and you drink a bunch of beers and pass out and you do that over and over again. But my psychologist friend said that it's so regimented when you're on tour, and it truly is. Like you're up at a specific time, you're on the road at a specific time. You have to be. It's very regimented. And then you come home, and there's no regiment. So that change in, in mentality said it's going to be very difficult. So he recommended when I get home, I have a schedule for the first few weeks. Even if it's like 9 o'clock, I go for a walk. 10.30, I play guitar for an hour. <clears throat> Noon, I make lunch. Just have a schedule. And that helped a lot. That was huge. And I had never even, never even considered that. Well, how scary was it to go through this? Oh, it was pretty... I don't I. I didn't know. When I was a kid, I had uh, some depression issues, but I, I hadn't at all for decades. Like, not not an issue. Um, so for that to come back, I was like, whoa, where, where's this coming from? Like, what, you know, I'm happy-ish in life and doing what I want to do and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and then yet still I was, like, depressed. But I think it was mostly just because I wasn't enjoying everything and the 
the work was taking its toll. The little reward um, was starting to mentally fatigue me. Um, and that, I think that was the biggest part of it was the mental fatigue. It was just like so much work for so little reward, especially with the band, man. It's hard to make money with the band. Mm-hmm. And I got to pay those guys their salary whether I make money or not. So it's very stressful. Um, and then, uh, you know, just eight years later playing the same clubs for the same money. I don't really know that that's much advance. I mean, we've played to a lot of people in those eight years. Yeah, sure. And we've certainly grown a reputation, but um, you know, we're not getting any festivals, really, um, which was kind of always the goal, like to grow into this thing. And, and you know, and it's like, well, are we not getting these because we suck? Are we not getting these because we play too much in town? Which is a possibility. Um, you know, all these variables, and then you go through the checklist, it's like, okay, why is this not happening? It's like, okay, well, we don't suck. We have enough people that enjoy our music and tell us that. Um, you know, maybe we do play too much. And then you have to try and reevaluate that and adjust things. So my goal was to uh, take this time off and uh, make a new record. I know it sounds weird. I'm going to take time off and make a record. <laughs> but what's that process like? I mean, I don't know if you're constantly writing or if you just say, I'm going to make a new record, so I'm going to spend the next yeah. month writing. Or... I, I jot ideas down all the time. Right. So, but then I have to sit somewhere secluded and be able to look through my ideas and piece the puzzle together, I guess. Sometimes you get lucky and a song comes out, but not very often. Um, and then, so yeah, I have to do some prep work. And then once the tune's ready, you have to do some pre-production and whoever's producing it send stuff back and forth and make notes and adjustments so that when you get into the studio you're ready to go you're not like writing in the studio i mean sometimes you do but you're not yeah. but you are know. you treating this next phase very differently because of what you've gone through like is this recording going to be any different in the way that you plan out things than than you have in the past few years i'll say right now that it's going to be drastically different it probably won't be <laughs> my like one thing I've learned is when I go into the studio, I have a very specific idea of what I want my record to be like. And usually the first 24 hours, 12 hours is spent me in my own head going, this is not working. This is not working out. This is not how it's supposed to sound, blah, 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 blah. And are you in a horrible mood then? Uh, I'm just, I'm not horrible mood, but it's just like in my own head, I'm losing my mind. I'm like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And then after that initial conversation with yourself you let go of what it was you wanted it to be and you accept what it is becoming and you make that record and that's happened every single time I've made an album except for maybe Shack Up Sessions um, I think it's hard for people to realize how difficult making an album is to have a certain vision going in there and executing that whether yeah. it be the sound that you want or just the overall feel, whatever. I just I've yeah. seen great recording sessions and I've seen horrible recording <laughs> yeah. sessions. And when it's bad, it's, it's like the worst thing. Yeah. Well, I've only really had a, mo- a moment or two where I can think of that. It, that was like I was like, oh my god, we're gonna have to ditch this. But um, you know, when we were recording Resurrection, uh, two examples. One, Daddy taught me. That's probably the only tune that I've ever had. Uh, idea in my head that we actually fulfilled exactly what I thought in my head and then there's another tune called Devil's Wife on that album that we were playing and it just was not happening and I felt so bad because Carl our drummer was killing it and I was blowing it Hmm. every single time and I was like oh my god I'm useless and we went and had a sandwich 
had a beer, came back, nailed it first take. You know, I don't know. The producer was that's the producer's job. He's like, okay, we need to take a break. Yeah. So we get some protein in us. You know, your brain's firing again. You have a beer. You're relaxing. Boom. You know, a little step away, come back, that kind of thing. That's the producer's job, I guess. But yeah, it, it, you know, it's good to have it's good to have a plan, but it's really good to know that things rarely go as planned. And when things aren't going as planned, you need to be able to roll with it, adapt, whatever right. the cliche is, you know. Just not lose your mind and, and continue to persevere. And that's, I mean, you know, that's in rec- recordings, but that's in life in general, right? So, uh, But how will you treat your future career differently now that you're going to take a break and, uh, I'm gonna and be, not tour like 14 months yeah, a well, year? I'm going <laughs> to be less obsessed about music. Uh, and I've already started that, and it's been amazing. I'm working part-time at a bar again at home. thought I was going to hate it. I love it. Um, it's a nice distraction, and it's great to make money and pay some bills off. It feels so good. And uh, and I'm trying to be more fit physically, and that's helping mentally as well. And um, I'm going to tour less. I don't care if that means I have to work a part-time job more. Uh, that's fine. I just... Uh, I want to enjoy playing music every single time I play music, and I don't want the pain in the ass of booking a tour to negate the joy of that tour. It's not worth it for me. So I'm going to start taking less gigs, be more selective. Um, I'm going to start asking for an outrageous amount of money, and when people are willing to pay it, then I'll play those gigs. And uh, just kind of the tours that I'm going to book to support the new album. The new album is going to be a solo album. And it's probably not going to be very "quote unquote" bluesy. Um, I'm going to tour that probably in a different manner. I'm not going to play as many clubs. I'm going to look for, you know, "quote unquote" the mysterious better gigs, mm-hmm. whatever, wherever they are, house concerts, that kind of stuff. Just gigs where if I'm doing solo stuff and I'm telling a story and singing songs, then I want to be in front of people who are there to listen to that, not oh, we're going to the bar tonight, and there's, oh, look, somebody's playing in the corner. Um, I'm not going to do that as much. There's still some places I'll do that because there's a lot of places where that can work. But I'm just not going to go and play, you know, 40 clubs in 50 days just because that's how I need to pay my bills. You know, I'll, I would rather bartend a couple days a week and, uh, and play 15 good venues, great shows where I come away you know, emotionally rewarded. Um, you know, for me, the gig either has to be financially rewarding, and don't kid yourself, no matter what job we have, we all do things for money. So I'm, I'm no different than anybody else. It's got to be financially rewarding and or emotionally rewarding. So if a gig pays, you know, 50 bucks, um, but it's been emotionally rewarding, that's okay. If it pays $500 and not one single person uh, pays attention, I'll do a couple of those because they 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 allow me to do the fifty dollar emotionally rewarding ones, so it's a trade off. I know your health is more important than anything else. I mean, I think that's just the reality of it. And to, mm-hmm. to come to terms with that is, it's, you know, mm. it's necessary. Does this decision scare you? No, it's, it's a relief. You know, I'm forty. I'll be forty one this year. I, was, I always think back. I don't know when I was like thirty two or whatever. And I started going hard. I was like. I don't care if I have to, if I'm 65 and I hump my amp into a club and make 50 bucks, I've made my piece of that. It's like, well, that's true to an extent still. Um, 
I don't care when I'm 65 if I carry my own amp into a club and I make 50 bucks. But there's a really good chance that I'll be doing something else in life as well to allow me to do that and make that okay mentally and emotionally. Um, it's unlikely that I'll be playing six shows a week when I'm 65, humping my amp into a club for 50 bucks. I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, and there's a, there is a lot of mental wrestling that goes on. It's like, well, you know, am I not, I'm not a full-time musician now. Am I still a musician? Are people still going to take me seriously? Like, how is that, how is that perceived reality going to be perceived, you know? And, but in the end, you just have to, you just have to justify it to yourself because people are going to think what they think anyway. Mm -hmm. You don't have any control over that. You know, when you put an album out, if you're happy with it, that should be all that matters because people are going to slice and dice it and turn it into something it isn't and tell you it's this, it's that. Like, you know, it's fascinating to me what people say about music and careers and what they think. But but I've always thought you were happy with yourself, that, you know, it's, it's yeah, you're comfortable with yourself. I am comfortable with myself, and I, I am certainly confident, but... Um, I don't know. I, I, I would be surprised if you picked anybody who is super confident, especially any performer um, that I know, any artist uh, or musician, whatever. Um, somewhere deep in there, there's doubt. There's mm -hmm. always that voice that sometimes gets louder, sometimes it gets quieter. And uh, that voice exists in everybody. It doesn't matter what you do. And if you're a performer... That voice, if it gets loud, man, that's trouble. If you start listening to that voice, that's a lot of trouble. Um, because then you're you're going to think you're not good or you're not, you know. And I mean, God, I had this conversation last night with some friends. Uh, like, what is good? What is What does it even mean? Like, who are you to decide what is and what isn't good? You get to decide what you like and what you don't like. But you don't get to decide what is quality, mm -hmm. you know. It doesn't matter if, if you think that person can't play doesn't mean they're not good because somewhere somebody likes that that band or that act and that's good to them so you know i don't know that's a that's a weird thing i think about so that with, a lot with all that you're going through and you're comfortable with this decision um of taking it easy and mm -hmm. spending a little more time at home five years from now what would you like to see happen what oh, would you like to be man five years from now uh i'd like to be physically fit and mentally fit uh, I would like to be financially a little more stable. You know, I don't care if I'm uh, rich or I don't even know what that is, but, I, I, you know, if I can pay my bills comfortably. Um, I would like to be uh, sharing a space in life and uh, and physically with, with people I love, uh, specifically the woman I love. I would like that. Um, and just be happy you know happy that's the goal be happy at whatever cost if that means not playing music and i'm happy then that's good if it means playing music and not doing other things and i'm happy that's good it's interesting that music wasn't in that descriptive until the very end well it's a constant for me though i mean music is not gonna go away if i don't ever play another gig in my life which is i mean that's not gonna happen but if i didn't i'll still play music i'll still write I'll, but uh, you know it just might not necessarily be for public consumption but, um, so I, I mean, I don't, it's, that's like, you know, in five years, I hope that I'm breathing. I don't have to say that because I'm going to be breathing. That's, it's an automatic thing, you know? So for me, music, I, you know, I didn't say it, but it's, 
it, it's it's as natural as waking up. You know, I'll play music in one fashion or another. So I don't, in my mind, I don't need to be like, oh, I gotta be playing music. But there's so many other things that are are uh, aren't automatic that you have to focus on to make happen. So those are the things that I kind of list out. But uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll be playing music in some manner or another. And probably I'll like put a new album out and I'll become obsessed again. And I'll probably book 200 dates in 2016, 17. And I'll probably go, and I'll go and again. Go, what what were you telling me last year? Yeah, man. You know what? That's <laughs> the greatest thing a person can ever do is change their mind. If you if you're humble enough to change your mind, then then you're probably gonna be all right, you know. And and musically, going into this next album, are you excited about the whole process of the next batch of songs? I am. I'm a little bit uh, uneasy about it, like scared or whatever, because you know you're always putting out a new batch of songs out for people to judge, and they're not afraid to judge. <laughs> um, but for me, this is you know I say it's gonna be a different album. It'll probably sound like all my other albums, but in my mind. The songs that I'm writing, they're not traditional blues. They're more uh, story songs, and um, and I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to. I want to make a record that is different than, the, and I always want to make a record that is different than a, the records I made. So that's my goal for this: is to to make a record that I'm super happy with, that is very different than the other stuff that I've done, but that I'm still proud of, and that hopefully somebody will still buy. <laughs> Otherwise, I may as well just make them at home and not put them out, but. Well, I mean, I think you've demonstrated that you're a very passionate and very hardworking person. Mm-hmm. And I presume that that's not going to change. In no, form, in, in so. any any part of life, that won't change. That's kind of how I was raised, and uh, that's just sort of who I am. So, excuse me, I will certainly continue to work hard, whatever I'm doing. But, uh, you know, I just want to take a little more time to not be as obsessed about this as I have been, because... Uh, you know, there's, 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 music is not the most important thing in my life anymore. And at one time, it certainly was. And uh, maybe it may, it may come to number one again, but uh, it's still very important and part of my existence and uh, integral to my happiness. But uh, it's not the be all end all of my happiness anymore, which is super liberating. I never ever thought, like six, seven years ago, if we'd have this conversation, I, w- I would, I would be t- telling you different stories. There's mm-hmm. no question. I never thought I would come to that, but uh, but yeah, like over the last six months or so, I'm like, hey, there's other things that I enjoy in life, and I don't have to be obsessed solely about this anymore. I can still do this and have a good time with it, but hey, I can also do that, and I can also spend time with friends and family and stuff. You know, that's it's really important. People people die and they go away, so you know, you got to spend a little time with them. I I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to get to the end of my life, and I wouldn't want to have the regret of being like. Oh man, I probably should have spent more time with my family or my mother mm-hmm. or my whoever, my best friend, whatever you know. Like, you know, I come to Toronto and I hang out at my buddy's place. And if I'm playing shows, I come to Toronto. I play a show. We have a drink at the show. I go back. I pass out. I get up and leave. Go to the next town. So it's not really quality time. And you know, this time I have a couple of days off. I get to hang out, have a barbecue. You know, have a nice dinner. Go out and have drinks with friends. And that's pretty cool. That's that's something I, I never took for granted, but I certainly wasn't doing enough of it in the past. So, so that's kind of a that's an important thing. Well, I think it's, you know, I think it's great. I think it's great that you've taken this time to talk to me. I think it's great that you're going through this change. I think it's pretty exciting. So yeah, me too. Good luck with yeah. it. Thanks, and man. I, I hope to catch up with you and, and see where it comes. I'm sure we'll stay in touch. I appreciate you having me in your in your home. It's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.